Welcome to Three Night Weekend, where we prepare you for the weekend to come with the help of gaming industry luminaries. I'm Shane Satterfield, and you can find me on the world's most advanced gaming website, Sifted, at sifted.net, or on Twitter, at Dinfire. If you want to support the show, head to patreon.com slash sifted. The show goes live every Friday for our patrons, and the following Monday for everyone else. This week, we talk with Jason Schreier. He built his name writing investigative pieces for Kotaku for a number of years before recently moving to Bloomberg to continue his important work. He breaks more major gaming stories than anyone else, and we're going to find out what makes him tick and how he approaches his work. Hey everyone, welcome to Three Night Weekend. This week, I am honored to have what I believe is one of the few real journalists in the games industry Jason Schreier. Welcome to Three Night Weekend, and thank you so much for spending time with us today. Hello. Thanks for having me, Shane. I think I would dispute that characterization because I feel like there are a lot of people out there doing good work, but but I appreciate it. You know, I'm interested to find out kind of what, what major you were in college, because uh, a lot of folks who are journalists sure. in the games industry weren't journalism majors, and I wonder if that plays into kind of the environment that we're in, but we'll get into all that. I want to kick things off by Learning a little bit more about you when you were younger. Were you into games your whole life? What was your first system you got? How did that kind of all play out? Yeah, my parents actually had an NES that I think they played or they used or they had That's in awesome. some capacity before, before I was old enough to play it. Um, so I was like two, three years old. They would stick me in front of this thing. So I've been playing games my entire life. Um, played all the cons- Nintendo consoles I had, and then I had a PC with like the point-and-click adventures, LucasArts stuff, and Sid Meier stuff, Civilization, Colonization, Alpha Centauri. So yeah, I've been gaming my whole life, for better or for worse, with a couple of like like break-ish things in between in that I wasn't keeping up with all the new games necessarily, like during college. I wasn't keeping up with gaming news and like every single new thing, but I would still play games. I would be like, oh yeah, I'm going to go play some RPGs on my PS2 or whatever. Or like World of Warcraft. I played a little bit of World of Warcraft during during my college years. Um, so yes, uh, I don't think there was ever really a time in my life when I wasn't playing video games. Um, did you know most of your life that you wanted to end up working in the industry or did it just kind of fall into your lap? What you went to NYU, correct? Yeah, I knew. No, I did not. I knew my whole life that I wanted to be a writer. And that was always my goal from, from the age of five onwards. I knew I wanted to write. I I had, um, my, I guess, original ambitions as a kid was to write books, write fiction books, and then fell into journalism in high school, really enjoyed being on my high school paper and like learned about a lot about journalism and like went to some, we had some uh, these sessions at Columbia University where we got to like learn um, about journalism and that was super cool and influential for me and then did, did college newspaper stuff at NYU and knew from then on that I was going to do some sort of like wanted to pursue writing in some way or another um, flirted with like screenwriting for a bit as well. But I knew I wanted to be a writer in some capacity. Never occurred to me to that I would write about video games in any way. But uh, but it felt like a good fit once I started doing it. So you went to NYU. What was your major at the school? 
Yeah, that's a tough question to answer. Tougher than you would think. So I went to uh, a college. NYU is broken up into different colleges. There's like the Tisch for the film and drama and stuff. There's CES, which is like general general studies. I went to a college within NYU called Gallatin, which is the School of Individualized Study, which is like, it's sort of like a create your own major thing, which I thought would be fun. Um, turned out to kind of be a waste of money and time. But, uh, but, but yeah, it is what it is. <laughs> but, uh, I think a lot of people would argue in a lot of cases that college does feel like a waste of money. Uh, relearning a lot of the stuff that uh, I learned in high school and having to pay a lot of money for it was not something I was thrilled with when I went to college. That's for sure. Yep. But but you get that fancy degree. I have it on my wall there. You get that the degree and that's that's all that matters. But yeah, but it, so I, I did a lot of so what that essentially meant was that, that I had the flexibility to take whatever classes I want wanted. So I took film classes, writing classes, um, programming classes, like all sorts of classes, anything that I found interesting on any given semester, um, which was cool. Um, I kind of wish I had just picked a normal major and learned something interesting, but uh, it is what it is. <laughs> I also kind of like was was not in an academic mood when I was in college. So I don't think I took advantage. I think this is a whole tangent, but I've long held the belief that going straight from high school to college is a mistake for everybody and that everybody should be like mandated to have a gap year to just kind of unwind before you go straight from like senioritis to like oh man now I'm gonna party all day and you don't actually like most most college students at least that I know like never didn't actually take advantage of the educational aspect of college and I wish that I had like I wish I could do that as an adult now and be like oh man I want to really study something um and it's a shame it feels like such a waste of everything money time everybody's potential um to just force people to you have to follow this this direct path from like high school to college it just doesn't make sense to me i did take a gap year oh that's smart did it help you it did in fact I, the reason i took the gap year was because i wasn't wasn't 100 sure what i wanted to major in at the time mm. and i figured i would just spend a year just kind of working a whatever job and just exploring things that i really love to try to figure out which direction i wanted to go but i will say this in my senior year of high school, when everyone was like, where are you going to college? Where are you going to college? And I was like, I'm not. I'm taking a year off. I was frowned upon. Like I mm. was because I was in advanced courses and everybody that I was in classes with, they were all had their plans laid out. I'm doing this. Yep. I'm, I'm going to get my master's and then I'm going to get a job here. And I was just like, I'm taking a year off. Like I'm just going to breathe, figure out what I really want to do instead of throwing a bunch of money at college. Um, and it worked out very well for me, although I will say this. I started out in business administration and that only lasted about two semesters before I became a journalism mm. major. <laughs> it didn't work perfectly for me either, <laughs> but I did enjoy the time. It was good to just have a, a kind of a breath after high school. Uh, but I was certainly kind of like a pariah among my peers in school. Yeah, there's a lot of social pressure and parent parental pressure, um, depending on your parents, of course, depending on your family. But yeah, there can be a lot of external pressures that like uh, make you feel like you have to go to college right away, right after high school. Um, yeah, I imagine that's the case for a lot of different people of a lot of different demographics, whether your own parents went to college or whether they're like relying on you to be the first person in the, in the family to go to college. There are a lot of uh, pressures at work here. But yeah, like uh, working for a year not only can like give you some time to unwind, it can also let you save some money instead of having to go into massive debt. And that's the other thing is that like I was fortunate enough to not um, have to take out loans for college 
college. My my family was able to help me out there, which I'm eternally grateful for. But um, but uh, people who do have to take out student loans just wind up saddled with this debt that chases them for the rest of their lives, and it's just so unfair to make an 18 year old have to make that decision. And like, if an 18 year old took a year and just did some work and like really started to understand money a little bit more because they were like working full time as opposed to maybe like working over the summer. Like I did retail jobs over the summer, but I didn't really understand like the full time day to day work until I actually did it. Um, it would, it would encourage someone to make their college decisions or to make, to take finances into account when making their college decisions, instead of saying, I'm going to go to the to private school because that looks the best. And I'm going to take out however many loans to make it happen because that's what I feel like I have to do. Just even giving them that year, I feel like would help so much when it comes so like making letting kids make smarter decisions well then you get to campus and you walk around and they're they're just giving away credit cards <laughs> oh god yeah where you just walk around they'd have tables set up where you could just sign your name and get a credit card just like that like you just watch all, everyone you know getting you know they're completely irresponsible like and, and they're all getting credit nice. cards and that just adds to the debt and adds to the problem having that yeah. year i think also helps you mature a little bit you're out of high school you're not in that kind of peer group uh, for an extended period of time. I think it gives you a new perspective. So I was glad I did it, uh, but I was definitely frowned upon for what I did. And I think that still yeah. happens today. I think kids are still dealing with that in 2021. You know, it's mm-hmm. the expectation that finish high school, immediately, immediately go to college, start making money as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. So no I don't know what it's going to take to break that chain, to be perfectly honest with you. Parents, really, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So you graduated NYU and you became a freelance writer. Uh, You were writing with some great publications. I'm envious of some of the places you got to write for. Wired was one of the big ones. What was the freelance life like for you? Well, so what happened was um, I graduated from college and then I decided to um, pursue journalism and freelance form and just kind of I just kind of was like, I don't really know what I want to do. I don't have a full time job yet. Let me see what I can make work. Um, And I wound up freelancing for a bunch of like local journalism sites, got pretty sick of of covering local governments, um, eventually looked around and was like, what could I do that would be interesting? Decided to try writing about video games. I had written in college. I had done a little bit of review work for like a volunteer website, one of those smaller sites that is like making people work for free, which in retrospect is pretty unethical, but I, but that that's what I did. I mean, there's still a lot of sites like that today, Yeah, yeah. but um, it does help you get your feet wet. I mean, I think it does serve it does. a purpose. It does. I, I wouldn't recommend it to people today. Well, I mean, I don't want to wade into that debate. But um, but yes, I, I did that a little bit just to get my a taste of it. Um, and my payment was like in the form of review copies from websites or from companies. Um, and so I did that a little bit. So I had some experience in that started like pitching stuff, going out there, sending emails to every single person on every single mass that I could find, got a couple of bites from sites that were willing to just like take on an experience freelancers to do random reviews. This was back in the day when like um, a site like Games Radar would like pay for reviews of random ass Wii games. And I would be like, sure, yeah, I'll play the OG Games Radar because mm-hmm. the Games Radar that exists today is a lot different than the one that was around back yeah. then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and so the Wired thing, that was actually more of a perma Lance gig. It was more of like, so what happened was in, I think it was like towards the latter half of 2010, I saw there was an opening up to work for Chris Kohler at what was called Wired Game Life, which was the gaming blog of Wired. And, um, he was looking for a contributing writer. So it would be like, we pay you X. I think it started at $500 a month, like something pathetic like that. Um, we'll pay you $500 a month, um, to to write x amount per week and you'll get to work with me and it'll essentially you'll it'll feel like you're part of wired because you're like part of it wasn't slack back then but it was like i think it was hip chat or campfire or something like <laughs> one of those old chatting but you were in on the editorial meetings every week and you kind of no, not that no 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 not that level but it was like i was just working closely with chris kohler and other editors there and anyway so i applied for that gig and got it and that was really my break in the industry that was 2010 so that was me getting my foot in the door um i'd been writing for freelance stuff um like uh uh paste and Eurogamer and joystick and stuff like that actually i don't remember which which came first but but that well, being at wired helped me get some more visibility and helped me do some big feature stories that that got some eyeballs and and helped me do more freelance stuff so i was still freelancing for other places while i was working for wired and since wired paid me nothing five hundred dollars a month i'm living in manhattan um cannot live off five hundred dollars a month what i found was i found this sweet gig that i wish existed today still that was essentially there was a website called patch and it was um like a hyper-local journalism website. And what they did was they had all these retail listings all across the country and people would submit them themselves. Like if I work at a store, um, I'm submitting my retail listing to patch uh, to, to include it on the website. Um, and the people who submitted them uh, wrote in like uh, incomplete sentences and didn't have great grammar, et cetera, et cetera. And so they wanted copy editors to go through it all. And so every single week I would get paid something like $500 a week um, to copy edit like 500 listings or some other 300 listings or something like that. And it was the easiest job in the world because I, I'm like a fast reader. I could do it all in like five hours while watching football every week. Every Sunday I would just sit there and, and do it all while watching football. And it was just like, man, as long as I have this gig... I can get away with permanently freelancing. Yeah, because um, like I was supporting myself. I'm living in the city. I was like on my own. I was not getting help or anything. Um, I was like on my own. And and uh, I was just because I had that gig, I was able to do this. And I don't know if there are any like other for people who are listening to this and wondering, like, how do I get into games journalism or how do I get into journalism? I wish there were more plum gigs like that because just having that steady income is what really allowed me to be able to do this full time and really push me, like commit myself to it um, and be writing every day and, and pitching every day and going and interviewing every day and going through all that hustle. Um, and if I didn't have that, I imagine I would have probably had to find like some job working at a store or something or some, some other like, like job that I could find part time with flexible hours to do it alongside freelancing. And that would have been a lot tougher. So I was very lucky to find this patch gig because that kept me afloat um and then yeah i was at wired for a couple years wired sent me to my first e3 in 2011 so got to go through that experience and wired also allowed me to go to like events in new york press events and network with people and meet meet all sorts of people um and then eventually at some point uh i got uh a call i got an email from steven totillo at kotaku and 
we met up for drinks and he was like, hey, uh, I'm going to be taking over Kotaku. He was about to become editor-in-chief at the beginning of 2012. Um, I would like I would like you to come aboard. And I was like, okay. And so that was uh, me jumping in to the world of, uh, I mean, that was, that was essentially like, I guess Wired was my big break, but Kotaku was, was my first like full-time job in games journalism. Yeah. That was like, okay, you're going to be getting a salary now. Um, you can, you don't have to worry about like freelancing every week and hoping that, that enough review sites will accept your, your pitches, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then, yeah, I spent eight years there and left last year and went over to Bloomberg and that's my career path. Okay, my big question for you is how did you get into the tract of journalism that you're in, investigative reporting? Because, and look, I I believe, and I know Steven very well, he worked at Viacom and MTV when I first started working at Game Trailers. Um, I believe that Steven was kind of a big conduit for that, that he mm-hmm. supported that kind of journalism and gave you sort of the leeway to do it because... I've worked at almost every publication at this point, and very few of them even provided the opportunity to do that. When I started at GameSpot in 2000, uh, there was an opportunity for that uh, to be, and I maybe we'll disagree on this, but be, in my opinion, a real journalist, actually calling people, doing interviews, following up on leads, um, writing stories that may sometimes be unflattering. A lot of publications aren't really open to that type of content because generally it takes a lot of time and there isn't a lot of output and particularly online where you're kind of on this squirrel wheel where you have to continually keep cranking out content for the audience. A lot of times it's discouraged. How did you manage one to find that as kind of your niche and two, manage to maybe convince Steven that it was a good idea to let you do it? So a couple of things. So first of all, I think that like, I don't really believe in, in like, um, gatekeeping the word journalism. Like I feel like journalism applies to everything. Like if you're writing guides, um, for how to beat the new God of war, you're doing journalism, you're providing a service to readers, you're providing information for people. Um, I, I think there are just many different kinds of journalism and all of them are just as valid as the, as the rest. I don't really think that it's, it's necessary to like put one specific type of reporting on a pedestal. Um, that said, I think, I don't think it's a big secret to say that a lot of people get into games reporting because they love games and want to be part of the games industry. And I think there are some other people, um, who myself included, who got into it more because they love reporting and just want to do that. And they just find the video game industry really interesting. If I, for like to, to put it another way, if I were not a video game journalist, I would probably be a journalist in some other beat, um, like a sports journalist or an entertainer or whatever it is. I started in sports um, actually in college. Yeah, I was, on, I was on the sports track mm-hmm. and um, I went to get internships at the Philadelphia Inquirer and they told me there were 85 students trying to get two internships. Because there's like Sounds six universities right. in Philadelphia, and everyone's trying to get the internship at the Inquirer. And I that was like, number wait a would minute. probably be 800 now. So, oh, I know. Uh, yeah. And I was like, wait a minute, like this doesn't sound like a good plan. <laughs> and so I started looking at other things that I was really passionate about, and gaming was the other thing. And I just mm-hmm. that like next week, the next week, I launched my own gaming website. 
Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's a good. I, I mean, I think that's a healthy mentality is to be like, I want to be a reporter and, and get into this. Um, and but yeah, but so so to answer your question, I mean, first of all, when I was at Wired, I was constantly picking up the phone and talking to people because that's what I found most interesting. Like, I I was fine to like write a review or or write an essay or a take or something like that. But the thing that I wanted to do most was talk to people and hear their stories and interview them and quote them and and put their piece put pieces together for for articles about a variety of subjects. Um, and so at Kotaku, I mean, the reason that Stephen hired me in the first place was to do that, was to be reporting. Um, that said, it was certainly an adjustment going to the blog minds where you're expected to post X times a day. Um, and it's definitely a tricky balance to figure that out. Um, I was lucky to have supportive people around me like Stephen who, who would help facilitate that sort of thing. And and pushed me to do some long form work um, and try to break news and stuff like that. I remember being so excited about like one of my first scoops, um, like a couple of months after I started about how like Obsidian was making a game that was canceled for the Xbox one. And I remember getting, or at the time we called it the new Xbox Durango. Um, and I remember at the time being really excited about getting that scoop. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was less because, um, I mean, yeah, it was because I was lucky, um, luck, luck above all. And then it was also because it was something I really wanted to do. And it was just, I was super persistent about that sort of thing. Um, and eventually kind of started doing reporting on some of the video game industry's darker sides, um, which I kind of fell into as well. Over the course of my time at Kotaku, started doing broader pieces about layoffs and crunch. And in like 2013 or 2014, we had a whole series that I was shepherding that was called Video Game Layoff Stories, where I would collect, compile stories from developers who would reach out and share their stories, like were, like verbatim, like share what they had to say. And it was really heartbreaking stuff and you say they were reaching out to you instead of you reaching out to them do you think you had established kind well, of we did we did call outs okay well we did we said hey like share your stories and it became like an ongoing series where at the top and not the bottom it would say are you a game developer who's gone through a layoff reach out to us for these stories or like we would tweet hey reach out to us for these stories so eventually you got you got people that way um and yeah, I just the more that I talk to people and the more that I met new um, game developers and, and got to know people, um, the more horror stories I would hear. And it just felt to me like something was really broken in this industry, which is very much still the case. And so I decided to focus on a lot of that stuff. But really, I mean, I, I was never I never set out to be like, I'm going to be the crusader against such and such topic. It's more that I really wanted to tell stories and um, inform people and entertain people and do journalism about this industry. Um, and I think that that it's impossible to do that without getting into uh, a lot of the darker stuff because that, that darker stuff is so prevalent um, as much as some people uh, don't want to talk about it or, or wish that the, the actual conversation was about why, why not talk about all the good things? Why not talk about all, all the great things people are doing? I, and I think that like, it's, you're kind of, you're blinding, you're kind of putting a blindfold on yourself if you're not um, really taking the time to look at some of these darker aspects of things and how they can be fixed. And let's be honest, nobody reads the fluff stories. You could put up a story about all the great things that Call of Duty Endowment does, and no one will read it. 
Well, I don't know. People are reading. That's how a lot of sites are making or getting all their traffic is is posting about the the hottest new games and exclusive reveals and and stories about what's coming next. I mean, yeah, that's where a lot of a lot of games traffic is coming from. There's a lot more positive people are more. I was talk, I'm talking more about more like cultural people stories. More, yeah, I don't know. I I, I think that yeah, like people are a lot more interested in in positive stories than they are in negative stories, stories despite the the general. Stories. I would completely disagree with that. I mean, we run a site where we we're an aggregator. I can see the data for every story we put up. Your stories, kajoom. Stories about things yeah, in the games industry that are doing good. Difference. Nobody walk. Nobody reads them. Well, okay, but that's not. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess it. I guess it depends what we're talking about here. I'm thinking of like, like the hottest news about video games and how awesome the PS5 is going to be, or whatever. I'm talking about reporting yeah. stories. Like, this goes back to what I was saying about what I consider like a real journalist versus someone who isn't. A, to me, a real journalist is a reporter. People reporting news, digging into news, doing interviews, the stuff that you do previews trailers i don't look at that as reporting or journalism and i guess we doesn't have to agree to disagree on that um yeah people watch that stuff but if you write a news story about something that the gaming industry is doing that is good or a person in the industry is doing that is good or you know like i said the call of duty endowment which does a lot of great um out in our society no one cares it's the dark stuff that people want to read the seedy stuff well, no, I think I I don't think you're right there. Having I think what you're talking about but what you're talking about Call of Duty endowment like that's nothing. That's not a story. If you're talking about stories, I mean every single story, this is something that a lot of people don't really understand about reporting and nonfiction writing and storytelling in general. Every single good story has some sort of conflict or tension in it. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's seedy or dark or like going into the dark underbelly of the video game industry. Um, I wrote a story, I mean, any really, there are tons of good stories about how people defy the odds and get past obstacles to do great things. Call of Duty Endowment is not interesting because it's not a story it's just like here's some rich people giving money um that's a fraction of their wealth and but it is a story uh, because a, a lot of times of they'll focus and... on one person like an amputee who lost his leg to to a roadside bomb yeah but that's there's there but there's no there's no story to bobby Kotick's uh uh tax write-off like paying off money to people like that's not a story if you told me a story about an amputee like working against the odds to figure out how to play video games again that is a story and that's an interesting story that people would want to read if you tell me a story that it's like bobby Kotick just put together an organization that is the call of duty endowment fund and gives money to that amputee there's nothing interesting or te- there's no tension or drama or conflict or anything interesting about that story but a story doesn't have to be uh, like about crunch or misconduct or harassment or, or volatility or anything like that to be an interesting story. You can tell a story about how um, at this year's GDQ, there's a speedrunner who uh, uh, had to uh, deal with his computer getting stolen and had to scrummage up the money to find a new computer and practice every day for eight hours in order to do this this one trick for a speedrun. And that's a great story. It doesn't matter that it's not about something that that it's not like it doesn't need to expose wrongdoing to be a good story it just needs to have but some Jason, sort of I would attention. argue that if you then wrote the story about how you tried to figure out who stole the laptop that story would do more views 
sure. I mean that that's part of the greater story. Sure. I mean, yeah. Anything. I'm just that saying is, that like, generally. I mean, there's a reason that the phrase "if it bleeds, it leads" exists. Yeah. No, I I agree. Uh, again, it's like you're talking about tension and ramping up the tension in a given story is always going to make it more interesting. I guess the point that I'm making is that for a story to be really good, it doesn't necessarily have to have wrongdoing. Oh, I would agree with that for sure. Yeah. Um. But yes, but wrongdoing makes for the most interesting stories. That's for sure. Like people want to read a story that has clear heroes and villains. And so I, I don't like that because I don't think that there are any clear heroes or villains in any nonfiction stories. Um, I guess there are a few exceptions. But yeah, but it's 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 definitely true that the more tension a story has, it's probably going to be more interesting. Um, but yes, but the stories that you were talking about earlier are tend to be kind of tension free and maybe they're not even stories and and that's why people wouldn't necessarily care about them because they're lacking that kind of interesting conflict or interesting tension or interesting stakes that would make something qualify as a story that's worth reading jason why do you think there are so few people like you in the games industry um (laughs) that do the reporting that dig into stories that make the phone calls that beat the pavement so to speak do you think it, part of it is because it's an entertainment medium and there's kind of this wall around it? Um, it's very secretive. I think a lot of people maybe feel overwhelmed with trying to crack the wall and get behind it. Why do you think that there are so few people that do what you do? Um, I mean, I don't think that's true. I think there are plenty of people who are doing some really interesting reporting work that I've been watching for a while, Um, some younger folks and some older folks, and lots of people doing cool stuff out there on the internet. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I I, I disagree. I think you're being overly humble. I'll be honest. But but that's, I mean, I think to answer the answer, that question is really money and the lack of money in journalism, in any form of journalism, but especially in the video game world where um, so many sites have just run out of money or can barely afford to pay their writers in the first place. Um, There are, what, like three, four major video game outlets these days, maybe a few more if you're generous. And And just 10 years ago, there were like 25. Yeah, yeah, but even then, even 10 years ago, they weren't paying like livable wages to people. Um, And these days, you're lucky if you get one of those full-time jobs. I mean, yeah, you've always been lucky if you get a full-time job in journalism. Um, Oftentimes, when you do get that full-time journalism, I mean, you alluded to this before, it's it's very difficult to convince your bosses, like, hey, I need to take the next five days off because I want to report on this story of why Outriders servers couldn't work at launch. And sometimes, I mean, sometimes one of the things you run into in, in reporting is that, like, sometimes stories fall apart. Sometimes you can't get the goods. Sometimes the goods aren't as interesting as you thought they would be. Sometimes all those weeks you spent on a story leads to something that um, is mediocre and only a couple thousand people read or, or whatever it is. Like, there are all sorts of issues that come up. And if an outlet doesn't have the capacity to pay for that sort of reporting, then uh, it just can't be done. And like, I don't think that that I would never say that there aren't people out there who are hungry to report because I know there are. It's just that it's very difficult to justify it as a writer, as a reporter, if you're being paid like sub minimum wage for your efforts as a freelancer, or if you're full time, or if you're lucky enough to have a full time job, and and your outlet like won't allow you to do that because you have to contribute to the blog mines and like keep the content mill churning, then that's that's what you're gonna do. 
That said, I mean, I do see, I see great stuff out of Polygon and IGN and GameSpot. All these places are just commissioning, Kotaku, my alma mater, are just commissioning great stuff all the time. And I'm seeing all sorts of cool reporting and storytelling and blogging and funny stuff and funny essays. And I, I've been, I've been certainly like not, not unimpressed by um, the quality of, of work that I see every day. Um, from my peers and colleagues. And yeah, I mean, I see a lot of people doing good work these days. Why are why is no one else breaking stories like you break? I mean, again, I, I think there are people breaking stories. I see oh, like... Oh, come on, Jason. I do, I do. <laughs> You're being I don't way wanna, too humble, man. I really do not like this. I, it really just has never... Really I know you don't want to hear it, but it's the truth. Again, like, I run a content aggregating website. But there are, I see I mean, everything that everybody does. Like everything that everybody does. I see it all. Okay, and I'm telling I mean, you, I, no one's doing what you're doing. Uh, with the acknowledgement that I disagree with your premise, the answer is the money thing. Like, I mean, that's fr- frankly, that like straight up, that's it. It's like, risk if, reward, if you're were, saying? Well, yeah. I mean, I don't think there are many other people who are lucky enough to be able to tell their bosses, hey, I'm going to go spend the next couple of weeks like researching um, why cyberpunk turned out the way it did. Um, and then, I mean, the other part of it is that like at a certain point, once you're lucky enough to have gotten to, um, a certain level, you become trustworthy to people and, and people know that they'll, that you'll treat their, their stories with respect and handle it with care. And I'm fortunate enough, uh, that, that a lot of people have responded to me like that. Oftentimes when I reach out to people these days about telling their stories, they'll say, oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I trust you to, to do this right. And I'm very lucky that I have uh, uh, gotten people to to trust me with that. And I always feel very fortunate when I trust when people trust me with their stories. Um, I actually was just I was just thinking that's about a reflection that while of talking. You, Jason. That's a reflection of your work. I mean, yeah, no, I, that, I to me, that's not luck at all. That's you. Well, look, it's, you probably got a first big break somewhere where someone took a risk and said, yeah, I'll talk to you. But then it's up to you to report that accurately and engender that trust with the people that you're working with. Yes. I mean, certainly, yes. I, I won't discount. There's definitely scale to it. There's definitely persistence to it. Um, willingness to be annoying and like not take no for an answer and keep hounding people is certainly a part of it. Willingness to go out and cold, cold call people and just say like, hey, I'm a reporter and uh, kind of you need to put aside your fear of rejection and fear of getting denied or getting embarrassed because someone forwards your message to a PR person and the PR person sends you a nasty email or something like that. That's all part of it. But like, it's impossible to discount how much luck there is like the luck, even going back to, to when I was born, like being lucky enough to be, to be born into a family where like we lived a comfortable life and I didn't have to worry about money. And so I could go to college where I wanted to and could take internships. It was, lucky enough to be able to do like unpaid internships during college and then and then being lucky enough to get that patch gig that I mentioned where I'm getting $500 a week for doing barely anything like five hours of work um and so that allowed me to like being pursue pursue journalism if I didn't have that gig like I always think about that like what how happened? lucky I was to get that <laughs> well yeah who knows like I might not be in journalism I might have been like you know what this is too hard I don't want to work at like Barnes and Noble anymore I want to go, I'm going to go take an office job in like communication somewhere or something like that. Like who knows anything can yeah. happen. Also, Life I was is crazy enough, like that. 
I was lucky enough to not have to have gotten rejected from um, the USC producers program that I applied to after college, which I was thinking I was like I had this this idea in my head that maybe I would go off to Hollywood and like work in TV or something like that, um, and got rejected from that. And so I was like, okay, I guess I'll stay in New York and see what's up here. Um, so there's so many like it's so I feel like it would be it's like arrogant to discount how much luck there is to like everybody's path in life and anyone who's successful has to just acknowledge how how much luck and privilege there is behind that and yes like i'm I'm not denying that there's also skill to it to hard work on it but i think luck is number one yes hard work definitely but yes luck is number one followed by hard work followed by skill as like a distant third but yes, i'd agree luck with that and, yeah. and hard work are, are the two most important things you can have and and i i always encourage people like hey don't worry about like ha- whether you have talent or not it's like that doesn't really matter like what you have innately doesn't matter as much as like being lucky which you can't control and working really hard which you can control and yeah that's those are the things that that i think matter most Jason, how do you feel about influencers, YouTubers, Twitch streamers? You talked earlier about how you feel like a lack of funding from a lot of publications kind of inhibits the kind of work that you do. Uh, It seems like those folks have no problem with cash flow. How do you feel about influencers and kind of their effect on the industry and sort of maybe how they they impact what you do as well? Yeah. It's tough to um, to group all influencers into one kind of category because there's so many different types of YouTubers, excuse me, doing so many different things. Um, I, it used to really bug me back in the day um, a couple of years ago that that like some channels would just like get hundreds of thousands of views by just like putting a, a very baity headline and reading my articles out loud. Um, I've kind of gotten over that and come to peace a little bit with, with that stuff. And how did you, like, how did you cares. approach that back then? Did you do anything? Did you just sit back and stew or did you? No, I mean, I just made snarky comments online. The internet way um but yeah i mean i've kind of gotten over that and um i do think there's a lot of like youtube work out the youtubers out there who do awesome work um uh, uh, Super Bunny Hop comes to mind as someone who I've uh, long admired as as a reporter and and a YouTube worker. Um, there's a channel called People People Make Games um, by Chris Bratt and um, and Annie, whose last name I'm forgetting. They do really cool stuff. Um, there's a lot of really good stuff on YouTube and Twitch. And um, I wish that I had more time to like be watching Twitch streamers and like immersed in that world. But it's very much like not not my thing and and not something that I've really taken the time to to get get into um but yeah i mean i think there's a lot of good stuff there's a lot of good and a lot of bad there's a lot of terrible stuff out there and a lot of really cool stuff out there um overall to answer your question i think that like the real insidious nature of the influencer machine is that it it blurs the lines between advertisement and reporting even further than they were already blurred. Um, and in games journalism, in the world of video games, there were there were always kind of blurred lines there, um, going all the way back to the magazine days where it was never really clear who was paying who and what was a a, a preview that that was editorially driven versus what was ad driven and and sponsored by companies. Um, 
nowadays it's kind of the same problem where like you watch a video from a YouTuber and it's never really clear who's being paid what to say what, um, what they're not allowed to say in exchange for that ad money, who they're afraid of pissing off. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that is one thing that to kind of, to give you one of the answers that you're looking for in terms of like what I wish that, that there was more of in the video game industry. Um, I do wish there was more of reporter reporters in, in general, YouTubers, um, anyone in this world, any journalist, anyone who's, who's considered someone who reports information to people, um, burning bridges with game companies and PR people and like really being willing to set things on fire and be like, Hey man, like, I don't care if, if this PR person blacklists us, I don't care if this company stops sending us codes or stops talking to us, um, because we're just going to do this. And I think that that can ultimately be like a big influence is that worry because we've seen it happen before. Bethesda has blacklisted me and Kotaku for eight years now. Um, and so that threat, even just knowing that it could happen, I think, can can influence you in subtle ways it can make you think twice before saying that thing or reporting that thing or or pursuing that story lead um so that's definitely something that that has concerned me for a long time is just like the the amount the power imbalance between the game companies that have all this leverage against reporters and the reporters who don't really have a ton of leverage when it comes to working with these game companies and kind of have to and that's even more true for the influencer world you you just kind of have to play ball if you want to keep getting that access keep getting those review codes um and yeah a lot of it depends on how big you are in all honesty, like it does. Trailers, yeah. We would publish scathing reviews from huge publishers and inevitably I would get a call from that publisher within the hour where I would have to go through the mental gymnastics with them about it. And mm-hmm. then if it escalated beyond that, I'd get a call two days later from our marketing department saying, hey, this publisher just called and they just canceled all these orders. And I'm like, too bad. Sorry. Uh, the reason people come to our website and we have a business in the first place is because they trust us. And it can be a hard discussion to have with people who are just Joe marketing person who doesn't understand editorial, doesn't understand editorial integrity and how important that can be. But my question is, is it all that important anymore? Because as you say, you have these influencers in some cases who have millions and millions of people who hang on their every word, yet they have no editorial oversight whatsoever. There's no editor-in-chief there, um, looking over their shoulder, making sure that they're buttoned up. In a lot of cases, it's just a one-man band. Um, What kind of impact do you think that's had on games coverage? Yeah, well, so to be clear, I'm not even necessarily talking about negative reviews when I talk about that. I'm I'm talking about other kinds of coverage. Um, Very rare. Very rare for a games company to um, blacklist an outlet for publishing a negative review as opposed to publishing um, info about an unannounced game, like derailing their marketing plans or publishing um, info about exposing bad work conditions at their company. That sort of thing is is more, more along the lines of what I'm thinking of. Um, but yeah, I mean, as far as it, it's, it's definitely true. I mean, we're seeing that in a broader level too, with the rise of newsletters and the money in Substack these days, um, where journalists are also going off on their own and, and not having editorial infrastructure around them and, and pursuing independent journalism. And, and that has its pros and cons as well. I mean, I think fundamentally any journalist who's working without an editor is kind of like, like has, has an arm tied behind their back and, and is just like missing out on a lot because editors are are extremely valuable and can save you from uh 
uh, if you're, you'll pardon the lewd phrase, save you from shooting your own dick off, um, or or whatever whatever genitalia you have, um, because it, it's so easy as a reporter to be like to to write things and just be like, I'm going to just publish this, and you need those safeguards in place. Um, it's like having uh, it's it's like having your your uh, uh, I have in my kitchen my my um, closets like the drawers below the sink and stuff are all uh, baby proofed and they have these magnet locks so my toddler who tries to constantly open them um, can't get in and I feel like that's the editor journalist relationship is like the journalist is free to wander around but like hey at a certain point you need those you need that baby proofing you need that toddler lock to like to have the editor come in and be like okay before we publish this let's talk about this and let's talk about what the story means and why it matters and blah, 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 blah. And some of my worst mistakes at Kotaku for, as an example, have been just because I've dashed off a blog post and just hit publish without like running it by people or like getting any thoughts or anything like that. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's something that I think would benefit most people and all people, anyone who's writing on the internet or making videos or anything would benefit from an editor and having someone with experience behind them to support them and, show them and help them and guide them and all of that stuff is like totally invaluable um but yeah the influences i'm not really sure what what the influences are on a broader scale um it certainly seems like i mean i've always believed that like the youtube world and twitch world can be complementary to written journalism and will never really replace journalism because there are always going to be people who just want to read stuff online and don't want to watch 20 minute videos just to get the the news of the week or whatever um and yeah i mean i I think they kind of exist for different audiences and exist for different purposes so uh so yeah i mean i think of like podcasts for example there are often people who are like I listen to three hour podcasts and I want my podcast all to be super long. And then there are other people on my own, on my own podcast, triple click. We keep our episodes to an hour or less every single week. And we are very much tailored towards an audience uh, who like doesn't necessarily, who maybe only has X amount of time in the week to listen to podcasts and, and doesn't necessarily want the four hour podcast every week. So yeah, I mean, I just think it's different audiences. And one thing where I'm really optimistic um, and really bullish on is in terms of the video game industry uh, is that the number of gamers is just going up and up and up every year. And I, I use the word gamers, even though I hate the word gamers. Yeah, really, me the, too. The, the I try to never use audience. it ever. Yeah. yeah we, I should avoid that. The video game audience is just going up and up and up every year. And like, there are more people I, playing I use games players. than ever before. <laughs> players, yeah. There are more people playing games than ever before. And with that, I think, comes... Uh, uh, more opportunities for media people and more opportunities to reach new people and to, to expand your audiences and to hit different audiences and to reach to like um, people who, who to, to create like um, podcasts and, and YouTube channels and websites that are uh, tailored for communities that are maybe like underrepresented um, minority communities and um, other people who maybe like don't get to see themselves as much in like mainstream press. And, and it just feels like there's more and more opportunities than ever. Um, and I just wish that their journalism could figure out how to, how to get money out of that because the audiences are bigger, but the, the ad money is going down and down and down. So um, hopefully one day, hopefully people smarter than I am will, will figure out how to make money from these massive games audiences well to that point i mean first of all i just want to thank you because your stories have helped us get out episodes of our podcast because there's some (laughs) weeks where there's just no i'm not kidding there's some weeks where there's just nothing happening and one of your stories will break and it'll end up becoming a topic in game face that 
Matt and I will talk about for like 45 minutes. And I'm not the only one. This is happening all over the industry. I think we all owe you. Happy to be a content We all owe you for gratitude for saving our butts over and over again. Very like, welcome. <laughs> but how does it feel, though, to know that you publish a story, which, and we'll get into like your move to Bloomberg here in a little bit, but it's published on Bloomberg. And I'm sure it does a lot of page views. But then you see some YouTuber talk about your story that you wrote, and it does... 2 million views, he probably generated a huge amount of revenue off of that. How does that feel? Um, yeah, I mean, it used to bug me a lot more than it does now. I've tried to be more at peace with it and more serene about that sort of thing because it's like, I mean, uh, I can't control it. And so what's the use in getting upset about it? Um, I mean, yeah, I, it doesn't it doesn't really bug me that much. Um, I think that, so one of the things, one of the reasons that I've kind of come to be at peace with it is because most of the time, I, it would bug me if they didn't like say my name or give me any credit. Which for we it. do every single um, time. Yeah. And, and so I think that like, as long as uh, people are crediting properly, I think even if they might, who knows how much money they're making, but like, even if they're, they're making money, that doesn't really bother me as long as they're giving credit when it's due. Um, but like, oftentimes it's not really like my place to worry to like, I, I, I try not to make it an ego thing because even though it is my story, quote unquote, um, we're talking about reporting other people's stories and fundamentally it's, it's it's what really matters here is like getting word out there about some things and telling the stories and like helping them find catharsis and helping inform people and 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 getting readers the real story behind certain things or like getting readers access to info they might not otherwise have and um yeah i mean there's certainly like ego plays into it and i i would be lying if i didn't tell you that i didn't enjoy like seeing my story go up because i get credit and attention for it but it also i think is is important to just like for more and more for as many people as possible to know some of this stuff and so if it can be amplified through wider audiences and if they're giving proper credit then okay cool um i mean yeah like so i have a new book coming out called press reset um i can't believe we've gone 50 minutes without me mentioning this well i wanted to uh, leave it for the end so people remembered it no, well, I was going to say it's to your credit as an interviewer that you got me off off my talking <laughs> point of the, the <laughs> book, which I wanted to I wanted to bring up. Um, yeah, so I have a book coming out called Press Reset, and I fully expect that like there are some YouTuber would like like summarize a story from it or something like that. But like my feeling is that if if even if a tiny fraction, even if like one percent or two percent of the people who watch that video go out and get the book, then it's probably worth it because you're reaching an audience that you wouldn't reach otherwise. And so it's the same with like any story. If, 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 a, if someone makes a YouTube video and it has 2 million views about one of my articles and 2% of those people, so, uh, what is it? 20,000 people, um, hear my name and think, Oh, Jason Trier, like I should go follow him. I should go check out his work. I should go read his stuff on Bloomberg. Um, then it's worth it. So the I've tried to like, basically. Yeah, so like if you'd asked me this two years ago, I'd be like, God damn it, it's so annoying. Like, I should get all the credit, blah, blah, blah. But like, I've tried to reorient my thinking to be more like, okay, let's see what the, the, the positive side of this is. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of my stance these days. Okay. Um, so you just recently broke the story about the crazy kerfuffle at Sony Bend and with Days Gone 2 and all that stuff. And then David Jaffe, former game developer, prominent game developer, 
almost created like a little cottage industry off of your story. Does that kind of stuff bother you? Um, and I, again, I did, I did hear on a podcast, you kind of sniped him a little bit and yeah, I, it's like, uh, yeah, I, I mean, a couple of years ago, I might've been a lot more annoyed than I am now. Um, now I feel like I have, like, it doesn't feel like something that I, I, on the min max podcast, which is what you're referring to something I talked about a little bit. Um, actually, I think this is a, another interview with Ben Hansen. I was talking a little bit about how, like the more, once you become prominent and you hit a certain level of like success and uh, quote unquote fame, whatever that means, um, you kind of have to treat your, your, your presence differently than you might've in the past. And that's been something of a hard lesson for me to learn, but it's something I've been trying to, trying to think about every single day is like, look, is it, is it punching down for someone like me to be like, oh, David Jaffe, blah, blah, blah. And I think it is. And, and so I'm kind of like, well, all right, I'm just not going to pay any attention to this and just not let it annoy me. And yeah, sometimes things will creep out, like taking a little snipe and, and being like, whatever. But, 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 but I'm, I'm just trying to be in this kind of serene place where I'm just like, I don't really care um, about this. And I'm just going to continue trying to do the work. And it, what bothered me was that, that there was like this, there was misinformation being spread at certain points. And there was like, so, uh, for some reason, a bunch of people started saying like, oh my God, Days Gone 2 really is in development. And I was kind of like, no, that's not true. Like I haven't had time to watch the video, but but if someone said that, it's not true. And it turned out that they didn't actually say that. And so that, that part of it, I felt like I had to clear up. But in terms of just like critiquing what this guy wants to do with his YouTube channel, I mean, I'm just like... I don't really care. Like, I'll just block him on Twitter so he doesn't annoy me and just move on with my day. Like, Twitter blocking is really uh, the most essential part of how I tr- stay calm and stay stay kind of sane on the internet. It's just, like, getting people out of my social media life and, and just, like, I think of it as, as gnats, like swatting gnats with a, with a fly swatter. Um, and it's so satisfying to do also is just like blocking people on Twitter who annoy me. And so that's something that I just try to do um, quite a bit and, and keep people out of my life. If they're like console fanboys or like um, people who are trying to go after trying to rile me up on Twitter for whatever reason. And yeah, so that's my mentality is just like, okay, I'll block David Jaffe on Twitter and then just move on. And I don't really care. Uh, I'm just not going to pay any attention or give it, give it much time. That actually segues nicely into my next question, which is what is the biggest misunderstanding about your work and what type of feedback bothers you? Because obviously you're working in games. There are other things that you could cover as a journalist where you wouldn't have to deal with sort of the younger audience who maybe is more likely to fly off the handle, a little more impulsive. Um, What is it about your job and your work that, uh, that is most misunderstood and what kind of feedback kind of drives you crazy about what you do? (laughs) Um, one thing that drives me crazy. You can say that in like five minutes or less. (laughs) Yeah. Well, one thing that drives me crazy, just one example. I mean, there are a lot of things that, that, that bother me, but one thing that drives me crazy is seeing people like on Reddit and stuff say, um, well, Jason Trier said this and I didn't actually say anything Uh, like that. And I have to kind of, 
I have to resist the urge to like go around to every Reddit comment, like responding to people because it would just be such a waste of time. But um, but yeah, that that's something that bothers me a little bit. But I've just kind of had to accept it. Again, it, it's like you sort of you hit this point where you become where your platform is a little bit bigger and you become a little bit better known, and you just kind of have to have to deal with all the the blessing and the curse that that is, the pros and cons that come with that. And one of the cons is that like you can't control what people are spreading, what people are spreading publicly, what people are spreading privately, what people are saying, what people are misunderstanding, what rumors people are sharing that are half true or not true at all, um, what exaggerations people are sharing. It's just kind of like you have to kind of deal with all of that. And it, 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 it certainly... Can be very, would, very frustrating. Would, yeah, I mean, it would really... I, I, I Again, I try to like... I, I try to take that that mentality of like I'm just gonna zoom out and not really let it bother me because people aren't really thinking of me as a person; they're just thinking of me as this character in their minds. Um, and that's oftentimes how people deal with with um, prominent people on social media, uh, people who have a certain following or a certain clout on social media, is that they just treat those people like their characters for their amusement. And so, an avatar. Yeah, I mean. I just block and move on um, if I need to. And occasionally I'll correct the record if I really need to. Like if I see a bunch of people misinterpreting something. Um, although sometimes if, so, if a bunch of people, often if a bunch of people are misinterpreting something I said, then I should have said it better in the first place. So I'll I'll try to try to make me a couple of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's it's it is what it is. <laughs> that's been a challenge for me working online for the last 20 plus years. Mm -hmm. um, and it doesn't hit yeah, me yeah, until that, like a relative a or something digs up something online and they're like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe what they're saying about you. And they're like devastated. And I'm just mm -hmm. like, Oh really? Like that's like the billionth thing that someone has said horrible about me online. It's we live in this different world from a lot of people and it can be hard to adjust to it at first. I think for a lot of folks. I have a question for you, Shane. Sure. Since we're talking about games media, how is Sift doing? Are you guys like able to make consistent revenue off ag aggregation? What's what's your your business model been like these days? We generate no money off aggregation. We don't run any ads at all. It's basically just a service to the community at large. Um, we're looking at changing that. We're looking at running ads soon. But even if we do that, then folks who are our patrons or our subscribers uh, would not be seeing ads if they choose if they choose not to some people are like i want to see ads i just want to support you got it i, I didn't can. realize so you guys are subscriber based right right, right. We are. Remember yeah that you guys have a subscription model yeah so when we launched we had an on-site um, how is that doing how is that doing for you it's how is that doing for you guys it's been tough the last 12 months we've we've lost a lot of subscribers since the pandemic started mm. um we were doing great up until yeah, about 18 months rough. ago um, and when we launched, we were we had an on-site subscription service, and a lot of our subscribers were like, "I want to give you more than what you're asking per month. So, would you launch a Patreon where I can just give you however much I want?" So, we have that. We have our on-site subscription service as one revenue stream. We have our Patreon as another revenue stream. We have YouTube revenue as another revenue stream, and we also have a big program for Twitch Prime, where people subscribe to our Twitch channel with Twitch Prime, which is free for them. Um, and then they get Pactor Factor, which is one of our bigger shows a week earlier than people get mm -hmm. it on YouTube. So I think any modern publication, if you want to survive, you need all those separate revenue streams. And we have merch and it's like you have all mm -hmm. these streams. And for some companies, it may be extremely large for us. They're modest. But when you they all add up and come together, you know, we just had our fifth anniversary last year. So um, 
it's look it i wish it was doing better than it is i'll be honest with you Con content aggregation um, even though our site does something that no other content aggregator does it's still a hard sell because so many people just want to get their news from twitter um, that's really what's mm -hmm. become the problem is getting people off of Twitter to come to sifted and use sifted as a content aggregator. And I don't, I don't use Twitter for news aggregation mm -hmm. at all because I use sifted and I think it's the superior way to do it, but it's muscle memory. People are just used to just waking up in the mm -hmm. morning, opening up Twitter. Maybe they see stuff. Maybe they don't see it. Well, Twitter is also fast. That's, that's a big advantage. Twitter is faster than anything else. Like it's always going to be because anybody want, can report if you're the, if you're the type of, Right, but if you're the type of news junkie who wants things as soon as they happen, yep. you're going to see it on Twitter even before your New York Times alert hits your yep. phone. You're going to see it on Twitter first. If so you're following the right people. That, I think, is the big advantage. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, most people kind of know how to curate these days to follow their favorite journalists and stuff. Yep. But, uh, yeah. And Sifted, I mean, I'm not sure if you're aware of what it does, but you tell us what you care about, and you get a custom feed of content. So it, yeah, all yeah, yeah, yeah. it also cuts I've, out all yeah, the noise that you don't want to see. Um, so there are advantages to mm -hmm. it, but you know, we have limited marketing dollars. So most people don't even know Sifted exists. Right. Let's be honest. Like, right. as you said, right. the gaming audience is gigantic. I would guess one, one hundredth of 1% of players know that Sifted even exists. That's right. really the big challenge. Right. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, we've yeah. survived. Yeah. I started a business yeah, that's yeah, now yeah. run for five years. I'm pretty proud of that. Uh, it hasn't yeah, been as big cool. or successful yeah, as I cool. thought it would be when I had stars in my eyes when I launched it. Um, but I'm very happy that I've managed to launch a business that's kept me employed for five years. And yeah, the fact that you can make a living off of your own business is impressive. Um, it's been hard. Impressive. I mean, it's a lot of hours. Um, but, you know, mm -hmm. we, we're games journalists. We work long hours. It's just what we do. I don't know why mm -hmm. it is, but I just I've always worked 70-hour weeks. Well, it's just all journalism. Uh, journalism is a very intense profession. I mean, that's that's always been the case. Um, There's no on or the off hours stops. in journalism. Yep, that's the way yeah. it is. Well, let's get back to you, though. This is all about you, Jason. Uh, so you, as you said, you left Kotaku. I, have to, I can't resist the urge to ask people questions. Even well, you're a journalist. Absolutely. Um, so you left Kotaku last April. Uh, I was mm -hmm. surprised to see this, but not incredibly surprised because I was kind of in tune with what was going on over there with Gawker and the mm -hmm. big court case. Well, the Deadspin thing is really the what happened. Thing. Yeah. Um, so... I wasn't that surprised that you left Kotaku, but I was kind of surprised where you went from Kotaku. You went over to Bloomberg, which is more of a, I don't want to say a mainstream outlet, but a more general outlet. It's not games focused. Why did you make the decision to go to Bloomberg versus going to an IGN or a GameSpot? Because in my opinion, like if I had the money to hire you, I would have thrown the bank at you to hire you. And I'm sure the EICs at these other publications probably wanted to hire you as well. Why did you decide to go to Bloomberg? Um, so when I was deciding to leave Kotaku, I reached out to a bunch of places um, that that interested me most and that I thought would be good fits for in, in a variety of ways. Um, and it, at the end, it came down to Bloomberg and one gaming outlet. And I was torn. I was, there was a lot of compelling reasons to pick the, the gaming outlet. And a lot of people I respected there and wanted to work with and, and thought were really awesome. Um, but fundamentally I was like, all right, which of these experiences is going to be completely new and teach me new things and like help me develop my skills in a new way. Um, and the answer to that was going to a mainstream outlet where you're writing in a completely different way for a completely different audience than something that I think would be more along the lines of like, okay, 
this is more of what you were doing at Kotaku, and now you can keep doing that, which is writing about games for a very gaming gamer gamer audience. Um, and to me, just the challenge of doing something completely new and doing something that was like going to teach me new things and going to have me be surrounded by like all these talented journalists at Bloomberg and the newsroom here and the tech team here, um, that was the number one factor and like the most compelling reason to take this job. And um, it's been awesome. It's been really fascinating learning from people and, and um, honing new skills and learning new things. And it's uh, yeah, it's been really cool. What do you think has been the biggest thing you've learned since moving to over to Bloomberg? It's it's not like one thing. It's more along it's more like, okay, this is how you we do a story and this is what a story looks like here and this is what the nut graph looks like here as opposed to something that is like okay here's a good example the sony story you mentioned before um if i were at kotaku that probably would have been a story that was just about vasg and how and what happened there and the story of of their last of us remake and how it fell apart and this little service studio or not little but the service studio that tried to start a little team to make games and how and why it failed. Um, at Bloomberg, that's not a story because it's not like it's not something that the Bloomberg audience would be super interested in. So it had to be more of a let's zoom out and look at the bigger picture for Sony and let's bring in some other stuff and look at some other ideas here and try to come up with more of a central thesis and and look at the big picture of what this all means for PlayStation. Um, and so that is like the perfect example of like the things that I'm doing a little bit differently at Bloomberg and and um yeah, it's 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 been fun. Like one of the things that I have to do every single day is um, talk to my editors who aren't necessarily gamers or aren't in tune with the gaming community and explain to them why things in our kind of insular industry matter. What 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 really is important here? What the stories are? What the the interesting um, narratives of this industry are? And that has been just a really interesting challenge and and been fun to do. Um, to just have those conversations and, and try to, to be a window for the video game industry for, for my editors who just do not have not care or like don't pay attention to this the way that I do. Sounds like what my job was like working with C-level execs at Viacom, trying mm -hmm. to convince them to get on board with gaming initiatives, having to break it down to the very basics of what the industry is about and why it matters. Um, do you think that Publications like Bloomberg are more open, though, to that type of content at this point. You think it's evolving? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they hired me to right. be a games writer and to do this sort of stuff that I've been doing. So, yes, 100%. Um, I think we're a long way from like um, uh, uh, every single mainstream outlet having a video game section the way that they have a film section or sports section. But um, hopefully that comes soon. I think there have been hiccups along the way and some like some ill fated initiatives at mainstream sites to like try to do game stuff that just didn't work out. Um, but then there's some great stuff like the Washington Post has their launcher um, blog now that is great and and apparently really successful for them, which makes me really happy. Um, and I would love to see more mainstream outlets doing that because yeah i mean people hear that the video game industry is 180 billion dollars a year and they're like wait what um games you mean like fortnite or whatever my kid plays that um 
I think part of it also is that like a lot of these legacy publications and mainstream media places are um are run by people um who are maybe older generations and didn't grow up playing games and as those of us who did grow up playing games start entering our 40s and 30s um and start like graduating up to those roles and maybe taking over um these like then then i think these sites and these papers will start paying more heed to video games taking games more seriously um so we'll see see i've noticed that when you publish articles on bloomberg often you have to you follow up on twitter with more context and texture that the story didn't include. Do you feel like you need to do that more now with Bloomberg than you had to at Kotaku? Would you have more freedom to include those details in the articles on Kotaku than on Bloomberg? Yeah, it depends on the story. Some of my stories, um, for a variety of reasons, we've had to cut out some details that I would have liked to include in there. But yeah, I mean, sometimes it's like, it's, like I said, it's always this conversation, this back and forth of like, okay, well, this is something that the gamers who follow me on Twitter would care about, but it's not something that like our Bloomberg audience would necessarily care about. So there's very much a back and forth, a balance of like trying to figure out what matters here, what doesn't. Um, does it matter that um, the reason Naughty Dog is is where it has taken over and is, has people working on The Last of Us 1 remake is because it's a good fit for them as far as where they are in the console generation and like getting into to the nitty gritty there i don't know if that would be super appealing to a bloomberg audience but for the gamer audience that follows me it would be super interesting um and yeah there have been a couple of cases um most notably cyberpunk where i've had to cut a lot out of the article that i didn't want to cut out but but i think that was there were extenuating circumstances there for a variety of reasons um and then the flip side of that is that we've actually published a few big features over the past year and delve into games that um i think are are full of great details um we published a big story a couple of months ago about um amazon and their failed attempts to get into gamings my my uh my my colleague priya anand and i published this big story about that um we did a big story last year about ubisoft and their executives and the misconduct that was that was happening there that was full of details didn't need to know clarification afterwards so we do have a lot of stuff like that as well um but that sort of story tends to be months and months and sometimes weeks of lead time um months of reporting sometimes weeks of lead time as opposed to a story that is more like okay we need to get this out quickly so we need to cut here do this do this do this and it goes through various layers of editing um bloomberg has a lot of layers of editing which most mainstream outlets do um which is not something i was used to because at kotaku it was like you write i write a story steven usually i send it to him for an edit and then we get it up on the page um at bloomberg there's a very different process and it goes through a lot of different people um we have like dedicated art people and photo people and and copy editors and stuff like that so there's a whole big um it's 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 a whole production do you have to send your content through a legal department there Depending on the story, um, some stories, yeah, um, especially stories involving sexual misconduct and accusations against people. Um, last year, when we were covering some sexual uh, misconduct allegations, we had to go through legal for sure. But we did that at Kotaku also. We had a whole legal department where I would constantly be running stories past them, um, and they would give us notes and, and tell us what to include and what not include. I did the same thing for my books also. It's just a smart thing to do as a journalist is to run run sensitive stories by by your lawyers. I don't know that that's happening a lot in <laughs> the rest of the industry. Well, we did it at Viacom because they were just crazy paranoid about being sued. 
And but, but I, how many? I, I mean, not a lot of uh, other stories are out there like uh, that tackle that running top, out that type uh, running. Of topic. Yeah, I mean, running sexual harassment allegations or anything like that. Like, oftentimes that stuff is, is, is broken first on Twitter or on elsewhere on the internet, as opposed to like a big gaming site. Like, I, I don't think I, I can probably count on one hand the number of times that a game, a big gaming site has been first to break the news of some sort of serious crime accusation. Um, so I don't know how often they would even have to deal with their lawyers. Um, but yeah. Uh, let's talk about your books because writing books yeah. has become a big part of your life. Uh, your first book was called Blood, Sweat, and Pixels. Excellent mm-hmm. book. Very compelling read. It's one of those books before I started to read it, I didn't have high expectations. And then I basically plowed straight through it and read it from. You didn't have high expectations. Wow, that's no. so rude. Uh, <laughs> it's no offense to you. I've tried to read a lot of video game books in the past. And I'll be honest with you, most times I cannot finish them. Mm. Your first book. No problem. Um, I did get it in advance of your brand new book called Press Reset, and it comes out on May 11th. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, I have not finished it yet. I'm only probably about a third of the way through. Just as compelling. Uh, I'm going to finish it. Absolutely. Probably go right through it this weekend. Plow through it. What What is it like trying to separate your reporting life from writing books? And how do you decide the stuff that goes in your book versus the stuff that you actually report? Yeah, so it's an interesting question. A lot of reporters um, who write books have to deal with that exact question and have to, um, sometimes on a national scale, like there was a whole big controversy last year about, um, was it Woodward or Bernstein? It was Woodward, I think, one of those two, uh, who saved like some some quotes from Trump about the pandemic that were pretty, pretty wild, um, saved him months uh, until his book came out. And so, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of controversy surrounding that very question. Like as a reporter, what are you obligated to share versus what you can save for the book? So with my first book, it was pretty cut and dry. I was going around um, and interviewing people, going to companies, interviewing people there. It was very clear that this was for the purpose of the book. And what I did was once I finished the each chapter, I would have some stuff that like was on the cutting room floor that didn't make it into the book. And so I could turn some of that stuff into Kotaku articles in a variety of ways. Um, with the second book, again, I mean, I knew exactly like when I when I'm doing an interview for the book, it's very specifically for the book. I tell the person involved, hey, I'm talking to you for a book. And so they have no expectation that their words will also appear on Kotaku or Bloomberg or whatever. Um, this was all during Kotaku, the reporting for Press Reset. Um, it was mostly finished by the time that I left Kotaku uh, last year. So, yeah, so so it was very much like me just just making separate it was very easy to separate because i knew very specifically what i wanted to do and the stories i wanted to tell in the books and how i was going to separate them from my day-to-day writing and and reporting um so yeah what about your editor steven totillo has had he ever ever had a conversation with you where he's like hey are you like holding back stuff from kotaku to include in your book you ever have a discussion like that no, never. Um, okay. Because there's so much value to writing books that, like, having, if you run a website, having an author who writes books brings a lot of value for 
all sorts of reasons. I mean, prestige is one of them, but also like the number of people I met and was able to talk to and connect with um, for my book just helped open all sorts of doors for Kotaku reporting. Right. So it, it's, it pays it's dividend super... for Kotaku down the line. Yeah, exactly. So it's like it's very beneficial in a lot of different ways. Um, so it's it's not something that he ever I don't think he would ever complain about that anyway um also i think if if it was like if i was clearly not delivering on something or like if i wasn't like missing deadlines things like that yeah um but yeah i mean i i wound up taking off time to write the book anyway so i was off in my own little book bubble um, <laughs> for a couple of months writing and reporting for that so it was very very um kind of separate from my kataka work how long does it take for you to write one of these books it depends. Uh, these books, both books I've written so far, um, have been um, have taken uh, like a couple of years each. With press reset, the story is a little convoluted because it started off as a different idea and then morphed into what it is now, um, which is, I should say, a book about uh, game studios shutting down and volatility in the video games industry. Um, and so, um, I would say the bulk of like research, writing, reporting took about two years um and that's like a general good rule of thumb is that like a, a one of my books has taken me each of my books has taken me about two years that's a lot of work is it rewarding and worth it in the end yeah when i say two years i don't mean two years of non-stop work i mean sure two years but it's a two-year like, project okay, essentially um, getting stuff done when you can yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. And then having scheduling and time for each book. And, and if I read another book, this will be, it'll, I'll do the same thing. Um, I try, I fit in stuff when I can for reporting. And then I do most of the writing over the course of like two months um, where I just am nonstop writing and working um, for those two months. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely worth it for me. It's been rewarding. Um, not really financially i mean the money is fine it's like a supplement to normal salaries but books don't make a lot of money despite what what people may believe even bestsellers don't make a lot of money um really but uh even with but i just i just readers and things like that kindles and stuff like that i'm surprised to hear that honestly yeah um it's not kindle like spotify where you're getting like one tenth of a penny per like read things like that no, 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 no. You're selling better than that. You're selling ebooks <laughs> okay. and you get X percent of them. It's just that there isn't that much money in the in the first place. I mean, if your if your royalty rate, depending on what your royalty rate is, you might be making like like a, a dollar or two per book copy sold or something like that. Depending, it, it's all it's all very. It all depends. You negotiate all that um, stuff. It's nice to have. Cons- it's it's consistent. So like. Bloodstone Pixels. Still, I still get a nice check every few months for my royalties on that book, and I imagine the same thing will happen for the second book. But again, none of this is like like I. It's not. I would not be able to live off if I quit my job tomorrow. Um, I would not be able to live off my book money. I would have to find another source of income to to live. Um, but but it's nice. I mean, I can't complain about it. But the real reason to do it for me is that it's just really rewarding to write a book and have it in my book on my bookshelf and in print and be able to like dig deep into stories in the, in a way that you can't really do online. Um, and something that really excites me about that is just being able to explore territory and have this like impact on people and resonate with people in a way that you can't really do with, with an article. Um, 
just books are a special thing. And I've, I've been a reader, voracious reader my whole life and always wanted to write books. So it's for me, it's just really cool to do. Um, and the money is very much secondary. The the, the number one is just the, the, the impact that it has. How about a tease for something you think from Press Reset that may kind of catch fire on the internet just to get people excited for May 11th? Yeah, I think there's a lot of stuff that I'll without spoiling it, obviously, but maybe a hint at something that people are going to be their eyes are going to get a little wide when they read about it. Yeah, I mean, I think people I think a lot of it is going to resonate with people. And I think people will leave, leave it thinking like, oh, my God, this industry is broken something needs to be fixed here. Um, and I hope that people, I hope that the right people read it and I hope that, that it, it leads to something. Um, but yeah, I think people will, will really be shocked at like the amount of volatility and how, just how unstable it is to work in such a lucrative industry. Um, and just seeing some of these stats about how many jobs people have to have and people moving across the city or burning out and seeing some of these stories, I think will really, really have an impact on people. the human element. Um, I'm sure there are people. Yeah, the human element, I think, will resonate with people the most. I'm sure there will be people out there who come into it being like, I really want to know the story of like what happened with Bioshock Infinite and how Irrational shut down. Or like, I want to know how Visceral, maker of Dead Space, shut down and what happened there. Or um, or how Kurt Schilling's studio, 38 Studios, how that lost $150 million and and collapsed in this this glorious fashion and and left all these people stranded and and unemployed and out of money and and how they screwed all how Kurchilling turned into this right-wing internet troll and stuff like that. So I'm sure that'll make some waves as well. But um but I think fundamentally my hope is that what resonates with people here is that like is the human stories and I hope they leave the book knowing some names of, of people who maybe they didn't know before and thinking like, "Oh man, that person is a really interesting story. I should follow them on Twitter and I should keep up with their story or something like that 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 to me would be really cool if if people leave um with those stories resonating so again that comes out may 11th everyone go out and get it jason before we let you go we have one thing we do with every guest on three night weekend let us know what you're playing what you're watching and what you're drinking this weekend um okay so um, what am I playing this weekend? I'm probably going to play Returnal. That comes out on yeah. Friday, right? Yeah, I'm really excited um, so for it. I'll probably it. buy that and play that this weekend. Um, fortunately, I'm actually, we're, we're, um, my parents are taking my toddler for the weekend, so I'll actually have <laughs> some gaming time. I won't be <laughs> chasing her around all day. Um, so I'm very much looking forward to that. Um, what am I watching? Um, my wife and I have been, Rewatching all of Seinfeld, so wow. we're probably gonna get get some more into that. Um, we might watch a movie on Saturday night, since again, no no baby, so we can get away with being like, hey, let's go watch a movie. Um, and what am I drinking? Um, I'm not a big drinker. Um, my my drink of choice is like seltzer, so that's what I'm drinking: water and seltzer and coffee. Um, occasionally, I'll have like a glass of wine with dinner or something like that. But like, I'm not a big like beer connoisseur or anything like that. Or liquor, con- we we rarely have liquor. Um, but maybe I'll have some white wine to celebrate uh, to celebrate the ba- baby free <laughs> weekend. Uh, Jason, where can people find you on social media? How can they connect with your new book? Give us all the deets. 
Yeah, so people should check out the Triple Click Podcast, which is a podcast I do with my my buddies, Kirk Hamilton and Manny Myers. If you, you listen to me talk and you think, hmm, this guy sounds interesting. I should listen to him every week. Then go check us out, Triple Click. Um, and people can find Press Reset in any bookstore, um, preferably your, your local indie bookshop, because I love supporting the indie guys. Um, but you can buy it anywhere. You can buy it on ebook. You can buy it on audiobook. Um, so go check it out. May 11th, Press Reset, Ruin and Recovery in the Video Game Industry. Um, I think it's pretty good. I put a lot into it, and I think people will really like it. And your personal Twitter handle, if you want to give it out. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it's Jason Schreier. Nothing, uh, nothing special. Okay. Uh, Jason, thank you so much. Uh, I just want to let you know before we go, I truly admire the work that you do, if you couldn't tell from our conversation. I think you're an invaluable part of the industry, and we need people like you for a multitude of reasons. I also want to thank you on behalf of everyone who does a gaming podcast for providing us with ample fodder <laughs> to get us through the dry spells. This truly has been an epically dry beginning of the year. So your stories have really got us through a lot. I really appreciate it. And thanks again for taking some time to talk with us. Thank you for having me, Shane. All right. Now that we know what Jason is doing with this weekend, let's figure it out for ourselves. Games! Ooh, it's a big Friday for games, people. We got two huge games coming out today. First up is Returnal, a PlayStation 5 exclusive, which is something we could all use more of. It's the next game from the team behind Resogun, except this time it's a roguelike 3D game where you play as a woman who's been marooned on a strange planet. Initial reviews have been sky high, but just keep in mind with these games, you have to play the same stuff over and over again. Next up is new Pokemon Snap. Yep, we finally got a sequel to the N64 cult hit. Reviews for this game have also been extremely high. People are saying it's much better than the original in almost every conceivable way, and it is a Switch exclusive. If you miss the old school shmups from the arcade days, R-Type Final 2 is also landing this weekend. It's available for PC, PS4, Xbox One, and Switch. A lot of people consider R-Type the best of the genre. And then finally, if you're looking for something maybe a little more aggressive, Terminator Resistance lands on the PlayStation 5. TV and film! It's not a huge weekend for TV and film, unless you're us, because there's one thing that we really like that's coming back. But first, The Mosquito Coast Season 1 lands on Apple TV this weekend. It follows a brilliant inventor as he moves his family to Mexico while on the run from the U.S. government. Next up, The Innocent Season 1 appears on Netflix this weekend. It follows an ex-con who went to prison for breaking up a fight, and his struggle to return to normal life is interrupted by yet another crisis. And then finally, something we're really excited about and you probably don't care about, but you should. Bering Sea Gold comes back this weekend for season 13. It is our guilty pleasure on television. We never miss an episode of this show. Maybe we're crazy, maybe not. Give it a watch. And then finally, Tom Clancy's Without Remorse premieres on Amazon. It is a standalone film based on the popular books and some might say the video games. Music! Lots of big indie albums released today, and we're going to run them all down, although there is one classic punk band that's also coming back. First up, Crumb. Its new album is called Ice Melt. They're an ethereal indie group with electronic beats and shimmering female vocals. It's a perfect chill-out album as you share a couple late-night drinks with your vaccinated friends. 
Its first album from 2019 was a critical darling, so definitely check it out. Next up, a band called Don Richard. The new album is called Second Line. It's an album comprised entirely of electro house, but at the same time, it provides an eclectic mix of different tones. It's downbeat one song and dancey the next, just don't expect many vocals. And here we are at the seminal punk band that returned today with a brand new album, Dropkick Murphys, Turn Up That Dial. The first album from the Irish punk band in quite a while. They were legends back in the day. And while the new album is maybe at least a little bit less angry, it's still not without teeth. For example, the lead single is called Middle Finger. So yeah, you get the idea. And lastly... Teenage Fan Club releases a brand new album today called Endless Arcade. This indie band was underground even by indie standards back in the day, but its legend has grown since then. The new album has an 82 Metacritic average, which is really high if you don't check Metacritic a lot, and it features the same breathless vocals and catchy songwriting from its glory days, but explores some new genres with an eclectic mix of songs. Sports! Unless you've had your head in the sand or you're living under a rock, this weekend is all about the NFL Draft. It actually kicked off yesterday on Thursday, but it's continuing Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. It's a four-day event. Everyone's going to be talking about it. Will I watch it? Probably not. (laughs) Next up is the Valspar Championship. It starts on the Golf Channel and then moves to CBS for the rest of the weekend. Moving to Saturday, plenty of soccer to whet your appetite. Premier League is on NBC Sports Network at 7.25 and 9.55 a.m. However, the teams have yet to be announced. And then Premier League shows up on NBC proper at 12.30, and that's Chelsea versus Fulham. If you're a hockey fan, the Penguins take on the Capitals on NHL Network at 7 o'clock. It is a battle for first place in the Eastern Division. Let's go, Pens. If you want to watch some NBA on Saturday, the Golden State Warriors take on the Houston Rockets at 7.30 p.m. on ESPN. And then the Nuggets take on the Clippers at 10.05. On to Sunday, the Lazy Day, where I'm guessing a lot of us are either going to be playing Returnal or new Pokemon Snap. But if you're not and you want to check out some sports, the Premier League again is on NBC Sports Network at 8.55 and 11.25 a.m. But again, The teams are TBD. The F1 Portugal Grand Prix is on ESPN at 9.55 a.m. If you want something a more left-hand turny, the NASCAR, and this is funny, Bushy McBush Race 400 is on Fox Sports 1 at 3 p.m. And then in the NBA, the Nets take on the Milwaukee Bucks. Should be a battle for the top of the Eastern Conference. That's at 3.30 on ABC. And then in Pucks, The Tampa Bay Lightning take on the Detroit Red Wings on NBC at 3 p.m. And then finally, cap off your night with something really slow and probably boring. It's Mets versus the Phillies at 7 p.m. on ESPN. Esports. few big tournaments this weekend. Uh, The Counter-Strike DreamHack Masters Spring 2021. Boy, they really need to come up with catchier titles for these tournaments. (laughs) But again, the Counter-Strike DreamHack Masters Spring 2021 with a 250K purse is happening all weekend. And then Riot's Valorant VCT Challengers Finals is going down on May 2nd for 101k. No small purse there. And then this tournament really blows our minds. The 2021 Free Fire Worlds Series in Singapore has a $2 million purse. And you're like, okay, well, what game is that? I've never heard of Free Fire either. But apparently, it's a Fortnite clone for iOS and Android. A $2 million purse, WTF.
All right, thanks for checking out Three Night Weekend on Sifted Games at sifted.net. A huge thanks to Jason Schreier. I really enjoyed talking to him. He provided a lot of insight into his important work in games journalism, and we really, really appreciate it. If you want to get it when it's hot and fresh, head to patreon.com slash sifted and give us a pledge. Uh, If you give us $4 a month or more, you'll get this every Friday morning. If you want to know when the show is posted for free, follow us on Twitter at Sifted Games. And if you want to reach out to me and suggest future guests, you can find me at Dinfire. I'm Shane Satterfield reminding you that every weekend is a three-night weekend. (music) 